protecting your assets for the next generation. You're listening to The Strong Room, a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 770 CHQR. Welcome to The Strong Room. I'm Peter Watts. We begin today with a question from a listener who wants to know if a relative, a grandparent as an example, can contribute to a registered education savings plan for someone in the family. We put that question to Chris Cherchansky, Head of Investor Services at ATB Financial. The reality of the world today is that a lot of young people who are looking at post-secondary education come from broken families. Family dynamics are um, unique to every family and not always as smooth as one would like. What are the rules about other members of a family contributing to a registered education savings program for a particular individual? Yeah, so probably the most common question that we would get is, can a grandparent contribute to their grandchild's RESP and what does that look like and, and how does that work, whether family dynamics or, or, you know, creating that unique situation you talk about. And a grandparent can contribute to an RESP, can be the subscriber to an RESP. They do have to make sure that um, the primary caregiver signs off and signs. So there's some a little bit of complexity in setting it up, but the grandparent can contribute, but the grandparent also has to be very careful in terms of once they set it up as a subscriber, a key thing that a lot of people don't realize is that in their will, they have to actually designate that uh, the money is to go to the beneficiaries. Just because the beneficiaries are designated in the RESP doesn't mean that that's how it will happen. So they do have to go through that step of making sure their will states that the RESP should go to the beneficiaries or their grandchildren in that case. Now, does that mean if the grandparent is in Alberta and the beneficiary is in Alberta, that's the way the rule book works? What happens if one or the other is uh, out of province? Yeah, so it further adds complexity to it for sure. I, and I think when you start looking at more complex situation, I think sort of generic advice we would always recommend going and getting specific advice, but the RESP program itself is uh, a federal program, so it can definitely work on a federal basis from that, but each province, when it comes to your will, have slightly different rules. So we always suggest that people get uh, proper tax advice, but the RESP program itself and the rules surrounding the program is a federally run program. That's Chris Terchansky from ATB Investor Services. Next, Stephanie Chamberlain, a Ph.D. candidate in nursing at the University of Alberta, speaks about her experiences working in seniors care facilities and how that work inspired her to return to school and to take up the cause of how seniors care can be improved in this country. We begin the conversation with a question about a group I had never thought much about. What is an elder orphan? Uh, An elder orphan is someone who doesn't have a family member or friend who can act as their decision maker should they need one. What got you interested in this particular topic? I worked in nursing homes for quite a long time, and I cared for a lot of individuals who didn't necessarily have any family or friends coming to visit, and I always worried about them and wondered what exactly was happening with them, and so I became interested in it from a research standpoint later in my career. 
And what have you discovered about the state of uh, elder orphans uh, in Canada? There's not very much information, actually almost none. We don't know how many there are. We don't know what their health or unmet needs are. And so there's a significant gap in our understanding about this population and what they might encounter in the health system. What did what was your experience in dealing with these kinds of people during your career working in a um, in a nursing home? Well, my experience was that the staff, both the care aides and the nurses, had to spend a significant amount of time uh, trying to organize uh, activities and organize items for them. They often didn't have people bringing in clothing or decorations for their rooms, and it was something that a lot of the staff worried about and wondered where their family was and what was going on. So it, uh, that was my experience working with them when I was in the nursing homes, yeah. And we have an aging population, uh, which means that we're probably going to see a growth in these kinds of situations going forward. Yeah, so based on our most recent 2016 census, one-person households accounted for almost 30% of all households in Canada, which is the highest in our history. And among seniors, about one-third, especially women, uh, were living alone. And uh, we're having an increase in couples that are aging and that are growing together without children. So it's really some of the first time in Canada's history that we're seeing this trend in families and demographics. Uh, what is the state of public guardianship? Were the people that you dealt with um, open to it? Uh, was it available to them? Or were they the kinds of people that inevitably fall through the cracks? Yeah, so the public guardianship system differs based on the province. So I did all my work here in Alberta. And there are some significant challenges with the system because it's separate from the health system. And so there's some significant gaps that we can see. For the most part, the big challenge with getting a public guardian is the time. So it takes between six to 12 months in order for your application to be approved. And so there's a significant amount of waiting that people do, both the persons waiting as well as the staff who are caring for them. So that's a significant challenge. Um, I talked to a lot of a number of public guardians and people who were in that role. And from their perspective, there's also some significant challenges with large caseloads, having to manage individuals that live both in the community as well as people who are in nursing homes, as well as people who are, you know, interacting with the correctional system. So there's a lot of challenges on all of the fronts, actually, in terms of public guardians. And there aren't near enough of them for all the work that uh, can be done and perhaps should be done. Yeah, and they're caring for a really diverse group of people. So they might be caring for older adults. They might also be caring for people with lifelong disabilities. They might be caring for people who have been homeless, who are, as I said, in and out of the correctional system. And they don't necessarily have expertise in all of those things, but they're being expected to be decision makers and do supports for them. So it's a big challenge for them as well. We have a new seniors ministry at the federal cabinet level, which is encouraging perhaps for this uh, these people who would be part of the seniors community. But I suppose with a lack of data, uh, the first thing that's going to happen is that a research project will need to be done uh, before the federal government can or perhaps should move forward on doing something. And yet, I'm not sure that these people uh, aren't so vulnerable uh, that they need something right now. 
Yeah, so I think it's encouraging. We see both at federal and provincial levels, we have this rise in seniors' advocates and seniors' portfolios. Uh, but as you said, without data and without a clear indication of the scope of the challenge and what this might mean for the cost to the system and some of those challenges, it's really hard for governments to make a move forward and make some, make some clear directions. So I think the first step is getting some data. And there is definitely an appetite within the research community to do work with uh, populations who are considered vulnerable or who might not have a lot of research conducted with them. So I think there's uh, immense opportunities and there's some interest from the system to provide this data. But as you said, it has to, uh, we have to be really pushing forward to try and get usable data that we can show to ministries, both provincially and federally, that uh, this is an important topic that needs to be addressed. Well, that's what I wonder is whether or not people like yourself uh, who are involved in geriatric studies are, you know, pushing the alarm button and saying uh, this is a a category that needs some attention, um, like everything else related to seniors. Uh, There are are more demonstrations of need uh, than there are of support at this point, uh, and this is a particularly vulnerable group. Yeah, so I think there aren't a a lot of people in Canada, at least, doing research on this specific population. There are a number of researchers, Canada, looking at people who are socially vulnerable and people who are isolated and lonely, um, older adults. So I think there are some that are doing it. It's a real challenge in the funding environment to get stuff uh, on older adults and um, this type of research funded. So it's a hard road to take, but there's definitely a research community that's interested in it. I think uh, in terms of moving it forward and being able to actually show results and so show change, there's some really important work in the health services research community that's trying to give um, actionable activities that ministries both you know regionally and provincially can take and actually implement um, and not just have pilot data. There's a big challenge in this country that we just do one-off projects and then they're done. And, you know, my research could easily, if it wasn't carried forward, just be one time and then not carried forward. So we have to make real um, concerted efforts to try and make our research broader, not just one province, but national and also give policymakers the tools to take our research and do something with it. We can't just do the research. We have to demonstrate to them how to make change with it. So I think there's some definite um, work to be done, but there's a, a lot of researchers in Canada who are trying very hard and actively working with their provincial ministries and federal to try and do that. So I think there's hope. PhD candidate Stephanie Chamberlain from the University of Alberta. Back with more in a moment on The Strong Room on 770 CHQR.